I want to talk to you about a really interesting college comedy program out of Toronto's Humber College, H-U-M-B-E-R. I am a visiting professor at Humber, and I travel up there about once a year to teach students. Now, Humber College has one of the few programs like it in the world where you can earn a degree in comedy writing and performing. In fact, Humber was the first college to start this back in 2000. The program is run by a great faculty, including alumni from SCTV and SNL, as well as amazing guest instructors from Kids in the Hall and other great places. This is a two-year diploma program, and some of the graduates from this program include Nathan Fielder from Nathan for You, as well as Levi McDougall, who is a writer for Conan, and Rebecca Adelman for New Girl, and many other writers who are making a career in comedy and performers. Now, Humber's philosophy is one that I agree with. They believe that the best way to learn is by doing. This might sound simple, but this is not always the case within academic settings. For instance, Humber holds weekly stand-up shows at Toronto's top comedy venue, Yuck Yucks, where Jim Carrey and Norm MacDonald got their start. And the college hosts a weekly sketch show at Comedy Bar, which is a great sketch venue in Toronto. This really is a top-flight program run by incredibly nice and talented teachers. All the teachers there have made a living or still make a living as a writer, and that's also rare within an academic environment. And it's why I am associated with it. I just love the people up there, and I love the program itself. Now, beyond all of that, it's much cheaper than an American college program. So check it out. You can go to HumberComedy.com. Let me spell that. H-U-M-B-E-R-C-O-M-E-D-Y.com. HumberComedy.com. Currently, there are spots available for the fall 2016 semester, but they might not be available for long. You are listening to Doing It with Mike Sachs. I am a gentle robot from the future. Let us not hurt each other. Let us do it. Carter. Thanks so much for checking out these songs from my new album. I'm so excited to be on the same label as my brother Nick from the Backstreet Boys, and I really hope you like my music. I may be only 12, but I've already spent a lot of time in the studio and on the road too. Maybe you saw me last year on the Nickelodeon All That tour, or opening for my brother. I toured all over the world. My first record sold over a million copies, and I think my new record is even better. Make sure you check out my website, www.aaron-carter.com to hear sneak previews of all the cool tunes. You can email me there and let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. Hey, Justin. Hey, it's Aaron. I, I can't come out tonight. I'm going to see this girl. Yeah. 
have I seen you before? Oh, yeah. Many times. Many times? Many times. Uh, I don't recognize a voice. Uh, okay, is this Marianne? Oh. Uh, have I had fun with you within the past two months? Yes. Okay, that cuts it down to a thousand. Are you Michelle? No. Are you Katie? No. Uh, uh, are you Annette? Yes. Ah. Nudist camps often, uh, often advertise that they offer the three R's. Now, two of the three R's are rest and relaxation. What is the third R of the nudist camps? Uh, ready, wep. <laughs> well, what, what happens here now? This is it. Okay, this is it. Welcome to the 15th episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. And they said that we would never last. Who are they who said that we would never last? The neo-Nazis. I am recording this particular podcast not in New York, but from the computer room at the Davis County Library in Rockville, Maryland. I came back home to face a minor crimes against humanity charge that's been ongoing, and I figured I'd kill two birds with one stone by both researching the chances that I'll one day be able to escape from a jail cell while also recording this podcast, and I think it worked out well. Before we begin, I want to mention that I'll be hosting a live show October 27th at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York. This will be the only live show that I do this year, and I would love to see you there. There are a ton of special guests, and I can guarantee that you'll have a good time. If you don't, I'll show up at your workplace without a shirt. And if you do have a good time, I'll also show up at your workplace with no shirt. What a great show this episode. I always say that because I have to by law, but I always mean it. This episode, I interview an incredibly talented man named Brian Stack. Brian has a reputation in the comedy world for being one of the best of the best. He's written for Conan O'Brien for years and years, and he now writes for Stephen Colbert on The Late Show. He comes from out of the Chicago improv scene, and he's one of those writers who's just a hell of a nice guy, which is always a good thing. I never interview assholes. Life is way too short. Brian Stack, one of my favorites. But before that, it's time for the, the babbling segment. We haven't done this in a while, and I'm happy to be back to it. I'd like to play for you now two of my favorite babbling excerpts. First up is Larry King babbling, and then Colonel Sanders babbling. This is the real Colonel Sanders, not the fake Colonel Sanders I've been seeing on TV recently. Both of these are authentic. One more question. A student of print journalism, and I just wanted to know uh, what advice do you have for uh, uh, young people coming up into the field? Like, I, a lot of uh, for prof professors are telling us how hard it is to get into the field at first. I just like to know, since you're in the field, do you have any advice on that? For instance, experience is that important? Uh huh. Sure. That, is, that, is that probably the most important uh, element? Well, it's way up there. It's way up there. Anything? Anything else? Anything you can do? Pressure under fire. Mm -hmm. Done this before. I don't want it to be his first uh, surgery. Okay. Applied himself well. Mm -hmm. These are things I'd have confidence in a young MD. Okay. I'm talking about journalism field. <laughs> 
I'm lost. What do you mean? The journalism, like, I'm a student of journalism at a college, and I was just wondering the most important aspect of getting into journalism, not the medical field. I think you're exhausted from 30 nights. I am exhausted from 30 nights. No, no person, even those of us who are superhuman, those of us with uh, Herculean appetites for the diverse and the bizarre, even those of us who uh, have shown an aptitude to uh, to uh, fight the good fight and stay the good long battle, even those of us can get tired. And your boy is tired after 30 consecutive nights. I have a half hour to go, and I'm going to do that half hour because I'm a pro. That's what pros do. I'm a professional. Look it up in the book. Okay. That's what we do. We're pros. We're never rude. We don't cop out. We don't tell you that we're ill or that we're looking for the farmhouse in the middle of the desert or that we're parched. We don't tell you that maybe the check didn't come through this month and where the hell does it go anyway if you're a guy who's left 16 forwarding addresses. Okay. So what do you do? What is the answer? Yeah, you're a little perturbed now. Kind of worried about the club. The club? Uh, don't worry about the club. Worry about maybe Jackie might worry. <laughs> nah, don't worry. Okay, just cool it. Life is a breeze. Of course, some breezes, as you know, are 110 miles an hour and get promoted up the hurricanes. I just thought I'd pass that along. We're, speaking of pass it along, we're going to pass along now to the newsroom, the mutual newsroom. High atop the overlooking downtown, beautiful downtown studios of Washington, Virginia, Washington, D.C. The mutual newsroom will get us up to date on the news headlines, and we'll come back with a little more open phone America. We'll have our salute to my man, Duke Zebert, by taking him to uh, one of his favorite places, one of mine, too, the town of Cooperstown, New York. This is the Larry King Show in Washington, and we'll be right back. Today's recording. Go again. I found a way to cook... Take two. I found a way to cook extra. <laughs> Come on over and, and try my crispy. It's entirely different, and yet it's just as tender and tasty. No, and it's just as finger licking good. You see, I found a way to cook chicken deep down and get that real crispy crust that some folks like. And it's just as tender and juicy. I'll get it now. I've, I found a way to cook chicken deep down and get that. Crispy, real crispy chick crust. Yeah, yet it's entirely different. No, we won't. This will be Wild Lines 30, take one. And now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Stop again. He said cut it. Go ahead. Go ahead. And, and, and now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. Yet tender and juicy. Is that it? Yeah. That's all right, it. Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. My regular recipe and my new extra crisp. Crispy. You extra crispy. I thought I said that. 
Now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. It's entirely different. Had every bit of his finger licking good, you see. Oh, every bit of his finger licking good. You see, I found a way to cook chicken deep down to get that real crispy crust some folks like. I better do that again, huh? Yes. All right. You don't want me to sing, do you, for Christ's sake? We're rolling. This is the good one. Take five. Most, most folks, most, most folks, uh, most, most, most folks. Right, once again. Uh, most, most folks have heard about. All right, that's good. Good, very nice. That's why folks call it finger. That's why folks call it finger. Sounds good. That's why folks call call it finger licking good. That's oh. Wait. That's that's why that's why folks call it that's why folks call it finger licking good. That's why that's why folks call it finger licking good. Right, I'm not getting anywhere with this damn thing. Okay, fine. Okay, I'm very very happy to announce that this podcast has a new sponsor called Citrana, S I T R A N A. They make gorgeous, gorgeous leather shoes. These guys have been designing and building these leather shoes in their workshop, a small workshop based in Santiago, Chile, since 2010. And they now have a brand new showroom and store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I recently visited the store. I'm a huge fan of shoes. The store is beautiful, as is their footwear. In fact, I'm wearing a pair right now. I promise you, these shoes are almost like works of art. Check it out. And even more exciting than that, listeners of this podcast get 10% off online if you buy shoes at citrana.com, S-I-T-R-A-N-A.com. Or even more fun, you can visit them in store and just announce out loud that you're doing it with Mike Sachs. You'll get 10% off. You won't be arrested. You will get 10% off. If you don't want to do that, go to their website, citrana.com, and type in the code Doing It, D-O-I-N-I-T, and you'll still get 10% off. That's an amazing deal. So Trana carries limited stock and can also take orders to build shoes, especially for you. That's Citrana, S-I-T-R-A-N-A, at Citrana.com. I never promote anything that I don't love, and I guarantee you that you will also love these shoes. Brian Stack is a veteran on the comedy writing scene, having written for years and years for Conan O'Brien. And if you write for Conan O'Brien, you have to be a writer's writer. Conan does not hire and keep writers for years who don't know what they're doing and who aren't at the top, top level. Brian got a start in the Chicago improv world, working in the same scene that launched the careers of Chris Farley, Tina Fey, and Stephen Colbert, among many others. Last year, Brian moved from Los Angeles to New York to begin writing for The Late Show. I'm a big fan of his work. The characters he's created over the years include The Interrupter, Hannigan the Traveling Salesman, God, and Gandalf. Now name me another writer or actor who's created and played such a variety of roles. Brian and I talked recently by phone. So how has your transition been from, you, you used to live in New York when you wrote for Conan for Late Night. How has it been uh, since you came back to write for Steven? Well, it, it, it's been a real interesting challenge, you know, to the, the people have been great. You know, I, I really do miss my friends at Conan a lot, and Conan included. Um, but uh, the people have been great at the new show. We we felt a real family pull back to New York because both my daughters were born there, and um, we've been feeling it for a while. And I never had a real desire to leave 
Conan, it was more like a case of um, we were feeling the family pull, and I, and I had always been such a huge admirer of Steven going back to the old Chicago improv days. He was always one of the guys I admired most um, when, when I was starting out in Chicago. And um, you know, it was crazy, the, the people that you saw at the local entertainment back then. It's just mind-boggling. But um, we, it's been a, an interesting challenge in some ways because the show, especially being in an election year, is it, um, more political than I was ever used to in terms of subject matter. But that's been an interesting challenge for me, you know, uh, since I'm a little more suited to writing kind of silly apolitical stuff. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I really like the people a lot and, and, um, they were great about being very welcoming to me and they said, you know, if it's okay with Conan, you know, we'd love to have you come and, and I talked to Conan about it and he couldn't have been nicer and he totally understood that I've been feeling the, the family pull back to New York and plus he and Steven are, our friends, which, which helped too. Um, so, cause I just wouldn't have done it if it wasn't okay. And, and Stephen wouldn't have wanted me to come over if it wasn't okay with Conan. And, um, so I'm grateful that, you know, I had his blessing in doing that. And, uh, I do miss a lot of, you know, some of the majority of people I came up with in Chicago and people I worked with in New York all live in LA now. So I do miss seeing them a little more regularly. You know, you go over to someone's backyard barbecue and just see it's kind of like a Chicago reunion every time you did that, um, or a New York reunion. And almost all the people I knew at UCB New York uh, are all in L.A. now, almost all of them. I'd say 90%. And so I do miss seeing them. Like, I was reminded of that last weekend. My wife, Miriam, and I went by and did a couple of shows at the Del Close Marathon, and a bunch of people would come into town, like Matt Walsh and... Let me pull in all them, and it's uh, it was just a reminder that they most of them are in LA most of the time nowadays, you know. So I do miss seeing them more regularly, but uh, but it's been nice being back in our old neighborhood, you know, in Sleepy Hollow, and um, we had been feeling that family pull for a while to come back. Yeah, when I heard about it, I was excited because no one comes back to New York; everyone's going out west. That's really true, and uh, and I understand that this. There's a lot to like out there, and I think it gets it gets a bit of a bad rap, like as just a showbiz town, of, you know, just the film and TV, just this big behemoth, which it is in many ways. But there's also this really cool local theater scene, and there's a lot of cool alternative comedy rooms, and you go over to a place like Meltdown Comics or UCB or IOS, and there's all kinds of cool little fun shows going on with really great people. So there's a really great community out there that um, that I think has developed. Uh, I know Matt Besser said when he first got out there, you know, there, there wasn't much of a of a scene, and he said it was a little lonely when he first got out there. But um, but now it's just really thriving out there, as, as everyone says, and uh, it's incredible how big the improv and alternative comedy community is there. Is do you think comedy is affected by location? Do you think that being in LA brings out a different sensibility, a different style of writing and performing than it does in New York? That's a really good question, and I've thought about that a lot. I think I think one thing that I have noticed that it's 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 a bit different than it was in Chicago. Uh, but the fact that New York and LA are both 
in some ways, you know, industry towns, you know, with, um, you know, big chunks of the entertainment industry happening in each of them, uh, they're a little more similar than people think, you often think. And, um, but Chicago, like, having come out of there originally, because it wasn't really a, a showbiz town, you know, it felt a little more like you could kind of develop under the radar a little bit more. And now, you know, the communities are in LA and New York are so, uh, have been so successful and produced so many, you know, wonderful performers that there's a lot more industry spotlight on both, both towns. Um, but I think LA, it does have a little bit more of a showcase feel to it. You know, everything, a lot of shows feel like there could be potentially showcases to mm-hmm. try to get some kind of interest from the industry. Um, I think it's still a little more like that than it is in New York, but, but New York certainly has a lot of showbiz spotlight on, on it too, obviously. And, um, but LA, I think definitely has that rep for a reason as a place where people go to be seen by the entertainment industry and, and hopefully get some kind of, get, get some kind of opportunity from their, their stage work. You know, that they can transfer into TV or whatever. But, you know, the UCB did that when they went to New York. They were, their goal was to get a television show too, and they knew that that probably wasn't going to happen in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it can happen in both cities, but, um, but I think it's still probably, the, the bulk of the industry is still in Los Angeles. I wonder if it matters too where you end up as much as where you originally come from. Because I do think that coming either from Nebraska, like Dick Cavett did or Johnny Carson or coming from the South or the Midwest. I think that plays more into it than where you eventually end up as an adult anyway. I, I totally agree. I think that there's a, there's a kind of Midwestern sensibility or, or, uh, like, for, for example, the fact that Stephen came from Charleston, South Carolina and has a kind of Southern gentlemanly quality to him that he'll never really lose, you know, um, or Jack McBrayer coming from Georgia, you know, and, and he says, sir and ma'am to everyone, you know, and, um, that comes through in your work. I think where you're from really does, uh, show in your work, even if you lose your accent, you know, like people still kind of sense that there's a, you never fully get the place you grew up out of you. Um, it, at least it seems like that to me. Yeah. Well, how do you think the Midwest plays in your comedic sensibility. You come from Illinois area eventually. You, you was, how old were you when you moved there? I, I, was, I was in the Chicago suburbs pretty much from age four or five on. Um, so Chicago was really, and then I lived in the city. After I finished school, I lived in Chicago uh, where I started doing improv and everything for um, until I went to New York. So I was there pretty much from you know, age four or five until uh, until I was about thirty-two when we went to New York. So that that is definitely part of my DNA for sure. And I was lucky enough that there was this comedy community there. You know, with Second City and IO, I always admired my friends who moved to Chicago to do improv comedy. I don't know if I would have had the nerve to do that. <laughs> you know, I just I was lucky enough to be from Chicago where it was happening anyway. So. It was my hometown. Um, I don't know if I would have had the nerve to say to my family, 
I'm going to move across the country to do this <laughs> this improv comedy thing. It probably would have seemed too crazy or too radical of a decision. But uh, being from here in Chicago anyway, it was uh, it didn't seem like such a big deal to take some improv classes. Well, a lot of people talk about Chicago being a great place to start in comedy. Why is that, do you think? Why is it such a city that's so conducive to great improv and, and comedy for the young? Well, I think one of the things is that the fact that there isn't really an industry spotlight on the town. I mean, there is to a certain extent. Like, you know, scouts will come through maybe once a year and check out the people who are in the Second City cast or whatever. But uh, for the most part... Um, it's it's a little more low profile. You can kind of, you know, you can develop your voice without uh, a lot of scrutiny from the industry. You know, you have a little time to kind of figure out your own comedic voice. And also you're performing for, a lot of times, for fellow performers who've seen, they've seen all your bag of tricks and they want to see you try new stuff all the time. And, uh, it, it can be, it, someone once said, you know, an actor friend of mine said that Chicago has a little more of a no-nonsense approach to theater. You know, they want to laugh at the comedies and cry at the tragedies, and there, there's not much room for nonsense. You know, they, they don't have much room for all the showbiz side of things. They just want, they just want to see good work. And uh, I think there's, it's a kind of meat, meat and potatoes approach to comedy and theater that I, I think develops. Uh, I think it's great for developing an ensemble type of performer too. Like people who, like I heard Laurie Metcalf once in an interview say that, you know, when she went to LA, she, a lot, she noticed that a lot of people were commenting on how unselfish her work was and how she would really serve the scene or the overall piece. And she said in Chicago that becomes kind of second nature. You know, you just, you know that you're part of the ensemble and, uh, that's something that John Mahoney said too, you know, um, he said people would say, you're, you're so, such an unselfish actor. And he said, he was basically just doing what was expected of you in Chicago to just serve the play, serve the scene, uh, serve your fellow performer, which is something Del Close always talked about. You know, make your, make your scene partners look good and you, I heard actually end up looking good yourself. And I think that that's something that gets drilled into you in Chicago. The sense of ensemble, uh, the sense of, uh, everybody looks good if they're making each other look good. That kind of thing. As corny as that sounds, it really works. And I think you see that in shows like SCTV or Cheers or Parks and Rec. Like, you, you, when I see a scene where Amy Poehler, as brilliant as she is, when she'll sometimes hang back and let the other person in the scene shine. And that's, that, that always strikes me as something that's very Chicago, you know, a very um, kind of ensemble feel that is present in a lot of my favorite sitcoms and movies, not just on improv stages. Well, absolutely. And, and she's an amazing performer. You're an amazing performer. And both of you guys, oh, I think all the performers who are at the top, they're not really out there yearning seeking to be funny they're just playing the scenes or playing the character and everything to me the lodestar is always set correctly it's always being played in a truthful way yeah but it's really i think the uh i'm, I'm often struck by 
like Del, Del Close once said, the smallest emotional discovery in a scene that's real beats the hell out of the biggest one that's funny. Mm. And um, there's something in like, like those little moments where Steve Carell would just have these heartbreaking little acting moments on The Office, you know, where he would just, you'd see in his face that he's just, <laughs> just heartbreaking, uh, these heartbreaking moments that were just played so real. And, um, you know, and Amy does the same thing. And, like, you know, so many of the, and it's not just Chicago trained actors, obviously, but those kind of moments always, uh, you know, I think about scenes like in, in Taxi when Judd Hirsch's dog is, is dying in one episode. And they just play it very real. But in being a dog lover myself, just seeing how just heartbroken he was that his dog was dying, you know, those kind of moments make the comedy around them so much richer, you know. Um, just those real, real moments that, like, that would, you know, sometimes throw people out of class if they went, if they sold out a scene for a joke or sold out a, a truthful moment to just crack a joke in the middle of a scene. Um, he loved, he loved funny people as much as anyone, but he, he, he hated seeing people push for like a joke at the expense of a scene or at, a, at the expense of a truthful moment. You know, he wanted the, the laughs to come honestly. And those are always the performers you love most. Even, even Chris Farley, even though a lot of people see him as a, a clown, which he, he was a brilliant clown and he was a brilliant physical comedian. He was also very, very truthful and honest in his work, and that's why Dale loved him so much, you know. I always felt he was, I mean, the movies that he was in were funny, but, you know, Be Be Beverly Hills Ninja, movies like that, didn't really do his performing justice. Absolutely. You know, to be honest, I've never even seen Beverly Hills Ninja, because when I heard that he was so depressed about it, I was like, well, I don't even want to see it if it's not something he was, if it's something that he that even made him sad that he did uh, so like he was in my first improv group in Madison, Wisconsin and when I was going to grad school there I was in, that's when I started my improv performing and he was just uh, one of those guys who was just a, such an intuitive performer and such a um, an honest and almost he had an almost kind of childlike vulnerability that a lot of people comment on and um, but it, it's it's a, so sad that he's not still around because I don't think his movie work really did him justice in terms of, like you said, in terms of his talent. Like, uh, I think anybody that especially got to see him on live on stage in Chicago or Madison, yeah, he was just, uh, he was a very special performer and a very natural actor. And I don't think the film work really displays what he could really do. Right, and from what I've heard that he was off stage, off screen, just as vibrant and likable as a comedian comic character than he was on screen. I mean, people absolutely would love him from what I heard. Yeah, he was a really, he was a really big hearted guy. You know, he, he certainly had his demons and everything, uh, but, but they were almost always directed inward, you know, at, at himself. Like he, he was always struggling with, um, his own personal demons, but, in terms of other people, he was—he had a very big heart, and he was very generous with his spirit. And he never, never felt threatened by other comedians. Just always wanted to be around them. He, like Al Franken said in a, in a TV thing I saw, he said Chris was the biggest fan of everybody else. Yeah. You know, he just loved. How rare is that? He was. I know, and that's the thing. He, he said, 
And he said, you know, that was one of the reasons Chris was one of the most beloved cast members by other cast members because they knew he wasn't trying to screw anybody over. He loved being around all these other funny people and uh, loved being funny with them. And he wasn't trying to um, beat them at anything. He just wanted to to make people laugh with them, you know. And, it, and that was really what he was like. And I think when you watch things like the Chris Farley show, those sketches, that was just a, a slightly heightened version of what he was really like around people he admired. You know, he was he was really the biggest fan of everybody else. Did you sense, even from the beginning, that he was going to explode as high as he did so quickly? Well, you know, I was so new to comedy at the time that I didn't have enough perspective to know what was really possible. But I do remember thinking... Is it just me, or is this guy, like, one of the funniest people in the world? Like, and I would see that effect he would have on other people, too. And I felt this a lot in Chicago, too, when I'd watch people like Corral or Colbert or Amy Poehler, you know, Tina Fey, these people. Um, yeah, I'd be thinking, well, I think these people are as funny as anyone working in movies. A lot, sometimes a lot funnier. But uh, I don't know enough about the business or... And who am I to say, but that was certainly how we all felt about them, you know, watching them on these little stages. You know, you, you, it was very obvious to us that they were very special. But you know there's a lot of luck involved in the business and that a lot of the great people don't get discovered and things like that. But I do remember thinking these people, Chris included, were certainly the, among the funniest people I'd ever seen, <laughs> you know. And I remember Chris making... This couple laughed in a bar. We went out to a bar after a show once in Madison. He was making this middle-aged couple laugh so hard. And I remember the guy, this is really true, believe it or not. The guy said, well, you know, what's your name? I, I've never laughed like this. What is, what's your name? I just want to remember your name. Wow. And um, so it was, uh, that doesn't even sound like a real, but I, I swear that's really, that really happened. And, uh, and I think he had that effect on people where it's just like, this guy is really special. Like he, I don't think he necessarily thought he was going to become famous, but he just kind of wants to remember this guy that made him laugh that hard. And I think he always had that effect on regular people long before he was famous. You know, and that's something you can't you can't teach. It really is. You know, I want to think of that Billy Wilder quote about Audrey Hepburn. He said, "What Audrey had, you can't learn, and you can't teach. God just touched her on her cheek, and there she was." Yeah. And some people have that, just that gift, you know, they, they are, they're born with a kind of special quality that you can't, you can't teach and you can't learn. I think people can get better, you know, and, and develop their talents and hone their talents, of course. But I think that there are those people that are, uh, I mean, Lauren Michael even described Chris as infuriatingly talented, <laughs> like, um, in that Chris Riley documentary. And I think, uh, there are some people that are just, you know, gifted like that, and you can't really put your finger on what it is, and you can't imitate it. It's like people do try, but they, they you know, there's there's some kind of magic happening there. And I wonder if they even know. It. I mean, do you think Chris Farley knew he was different than even you know the best of the best? You know, I think he had such insecurity and so so much self. Self-loathing in a certain way that I, 
don't think he ever loved himself the way other people loved him. But uh, but I, th- I think he knew he was, at least I would think he would have to know the effect he had on other people in terms of making them laugh. The sad thing was I think he thought that that was the only thing. I think he got so much of his self-worth out of that that if he didn't, I think there were times where he felt like if he wasn't making people laugh, that he wasn't earning his keep or that people wouldn't love him if he wasn't making them laugh. It was one of the reasons people loved him, but the people just loved him. You know, he was just a a really sweet guy. and But I think he felt like he was earning his place in the room by making people laugh. And I think it's why he felt he needed to be on all the time. And, uh, the stage, that can drive you mad. Absolutely, and you can't, you know, it, it, there are times where, like, I got really struck, like, when Steve Martin was on Late Night once, they just saw him walking in the hallway, and he was very quiet and reserved, and, you know, he was sort of looking at things on the wall, and, like, almost like an art professor, you know, and uh, still very friendly to everyone, but there was nothing wacky or crazy about him off when he's off screen or whatever. He's, he's very, he can shut it down, you know, he can kind of just, step away and be a very gracious, polite, nice man. And then he gets on stage with the arrow through his head and, you know, he can, he can turn that on, but I think he knew there was a place for that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, um, some comedians, I think have a harder time turning that, that performance energy off. Right. Which can only be exhausting. It's gotta be. I don't know how anyone could really sustain it all the time and be a, a healthy, happy individual. Like, I was even struck when Gilbert Gottfried once on late night. I, I don't know him at all, but I, I just said, uh, hi, Gilbert, it's great to have you here. I've always been a, a big fan, and he, he, I could barely hear him when he responded. He was very kind, but he was like, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is very strange to me that Gilbert Gottfried is shy, you know, and kind of quiet, and and Patty Smith, I remember she was on the show, and she was very quiet and shy and sweet. And I'm, it was very, that used to surprise me. It doesn't really surprise me anymore when performers are shy. When I was coming up, I thought, well, I'm shy, but I can't be a performer, you know, because performers aren't shy. They're always out there. And I was so wrong about that. I mean, the majority of performers I've met uh, are sometimes go into it because they're shy and they're kind of pushing yeah, they have to kind of push themselves into it. And I remember hearing how John Lennon would throw up from stage fright, and I found that so mind-boggling. <laughs> right, after but, uh, the Beatles. This wasn't even when he was in the Beatles. This is after he was the biggest star on Earth he would throw up before performing. I know, and I found that just like, what? But uh, that used to shock me more than it does now. Like, I, I, I realize now that, um, you know, the, the vast majority of performers I've met uh, you know, aren't necessarily extroverts, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, um, they tend to, they, they're, they're oftentimes much more comfortable on stage than they are at a party, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, well, you hear stories about Johnny Carson being more comfortable at a party performing a magic trick in front of a child than he would be at talking with adults making small talk. Yeah, absolutely, that's a great example. And, uh, you know, you just, you know, you just, uh, I, I, that, that, that all rings true to me now. But, uh, yeah, growing up, it never occurred to me that performers, I just assumed that everybody, if you're in the public eye, you, you're never, you never have 
any moments of insecurity or self-doubt or anything, you know, and um, I now know a lot better. But there also seems to be this sense, and I say this not knowing these people, but, you know, the great performers are have this openness and decency that comes through in their work. And I would say that goes for Stephen Colbert, Amy Poehler, and even you. There seems to be a very positive force running through them. Well, Mike, that means that means a lot to hear you hear you say that, and uh, I think I think it is true at least in performers that I've admired a lot. Like it does come through. I think there's a certain amount of um, yourself that always comes through, and that's certainly true with Amy and Stephen. Like when I watch, I, I get the sense that like if you watch uh, Amy in anything, even if she's playing a like on SNL, she's playing a jerk character. You still there's a there's a kind of warmth and decency that comes through in her. That never really goes away. She's she's always lovable, even when she's playing a jerk, you know. Right. And um, and Stephen certainly, you know, is always a guy for right from early on. I remember the first time I ever saw him perform, he was in Chris Riley's touring company in Second City in '88, and I went to the the first Turco show they did, and that was the first time I ever saw Stephen perform. And right from the start, his intelligence just radiated off the stage too. Um, and his, uh, his wit, you know, he was always just this, Tina too, I remember seeing, the first time I saw Tina, the first time I saw Amy, he was there on an improv Olympic team in the early 90s, and her, her intelligence and wit, it was kind of like, I was struck, Tina's always struck me as Dorothy Parker without the drinking problem. You know? <laughs> right. Just that, that incredible, sharp laser wit, mm-hmm. without the self-destructiveness, you know, and, um, and Amy was, She's one of the few people I've ever seen that seemed fully formed the first time I saw her. You know, a lot of performers go through an arc where you see them grow and they, you know, they're, they're like this mold of this little ball of clay that gets honed and sharpened. But she seemed to be kind of Amy right from the start, which is pretty remarkable. She's always very special, I think. Well, yeah, you, that's interesting you mentioned intelligence because you can't be funny without being intelligent. And I think one thing you can learn um, in comedy or any anywhere else is that a lot of intelligence comes from knowing a lot about a lot, and a, a lot of that isn't about comedy. It's just about life and about nonfiction and about history and philosophy and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think having a well-rounded interest in the world is certainly very valuable, especially as an improviser and writer. Like I, uh, several years back, I actually wrote a letter to a professor I had had in college that I never actually had met in college. But I loved his class so much that he taught about classes about um, Alexander the Great and the Greeks and things like that. And he is, the stuff I learned in that class stayed with me and would come up and double up in improv scenes years later or, you know, if I was writing a sketch about Socrates on Conan or whatever. And I just wrote to him saying, hey, I just want to thank you. You know, your class not only was a lot of fun and really interesting to me, but I've actually used it in ways that I never expected to. And he wrote back, you know, he was really touched by it. It was, uh, and I'm glad I wrote it. I just felt compelled to write this guy. I never even met. Um, but it was, I think that's really true. I think you, I think having a kind of, my, my mom used to say that my dad and I are treasuries of useless information. <laughs> um, but, but they, <laughs> 
you know, uh, but it ends up, a lot of the stuff he thought was going to be utterly useless ends up being quite useful in, uh, in improv and in comedy writing, you know. It comes, it's certainly been useful in ways I never expected it to be. Yeah, I don't think anything's useless. I think if anything, uh, those in comedy should look where others aren't and look at so-called useless information rather than memorizing every episode of The Simpsons. I think by knowing a lot about a lot, it can only further your your comedy and your career. I totally agree, and I think that one of the reasons people love shows like The Simpsons is because the people who created it uh, had a vast you know, knowledge of a wide range of topics that informed their own writing and their own uh, thoughts. I mean, you watch an episode like the one, one of Conan's uh, classics that he wrote, Marge and the Monorail, you know, and all his references to the Music Man and to, uh, you know, Slim Flam Con Man who would come through town. And, you know, so much of that is just yeah. some Conan loving old showbiz stuff yeah. <laughs> or, um, you know, references to things. And, uh, you know, Conan's love of history and like when he did that 19th century rules baseball remote, which is still one of my favorites, you know, so much of that, just him getting to be a 19th century guy, <laughs> you know, and having so much fun. And that wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't had a love of history and a love of the Civil War, and, you know, all that, all that trivia, you know, it, it just, it ends up being useful in ways you just never expected. <laughs> well, exactly, and you can see it in your work, too, specifically Hannigan, the Traveling Salesman. This is a character from another time, not just the way he speaks, but almost his verbal dexterity and the, the melody in his voice. You just you don't see that anymore, and I imagine that a lot of Conan viewers hadn't seen that before you performed that, but fell in love with it. Oh, thanks so much. That was always one of my favorite characters to do, and um, I remember that... The idea of a salesman character was originally suggested by Andrew Weinberg, who was one of our writers, and he said, how about, you know, Stack plays just a, a salesman who comes around selling jokes. And um, I ended up writing it with, with him and, and Michael Coleman. Um, and uh, it, I think when I developed the character in terms of actually how to play it, subconsciously it, it all came back to like things like William Powell and the old Thin Man movies and you know, all these things I grew up watching as a kid and loving, you know, the old, uh, sort of like, you know, that's all the My Man Godfrey way of talking, you know. Right, right. <laughs> and um, just from those old movies that it soaked into my brain. And, um, yeah, those are those things that just become part of your DNA and come out in your characters. And uh, like Keith Richards said, you know, if you're a musician, you know, everything you've ever heard comes out in what you play. and um, I think that's true of comedians too. Like, even if you're not consciously emulating someone, you know, all all the people you really love. Like, there are times where I'll be doing a character, and I'll I'll watch it later, and I'll be like, oh my god, I I should send a royalty check to Joe Flaherty for that, (laughs) (laughs) right? Or something. They'll be like, you know, I didn't even consciously, you know, but I'm like, oh my god, that the way I just barked at that guy, that was a total Joe Flaherty bark, you know, like. Right. Well, I'm sure Joe Flaherty thinks the same thing when he watches old things. Like, oh, that's Bob Hope. Everyone is influenced by someone. Exactly. Like, I remember Woody Allen commenting on how Bob Hope was his favorite comedian, and I'm like, really? They're so different. And then I would watch how Woody Allen would express fear in, like, Love and Death or something, and he'd be, like, hemming and hawing, going, 
Uh, yes, I'll just uh, be over here. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, my God, that is Bob Hope, the funny coward, you know, um, and uh, and how much he also loved Groucho Marx. And, you know, like for me, like I'll notice things come out of Python or TV. A lot of stuff comes from music I loved, you know. It, it, it all comes bubbling out various ways. Well, these characters that you play, we spoke about this a little earlier, the likable even when unlikable. I mean, going back to Hannigan, the traveling salesman, not a nice guy necessarily. <laughs> and, his, and he comes from a family that wasn't that nice. His father was killed in his sleep by a shifty Creole prostitute, which is one of the best <laughs> lines I've ever heard. But these are they're really likable. And that balance between unlikable and likable and sad and funny is a very thin line, but you really nail it. Where does that come from, that 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 line between the sad and the funny? That's a good question. I, I think so much of the comedy I love, that I've always loved, has had that kind of, maybe it's the Irish blood or something, uh, the, the kind of melancholy side of things, but uh, like I've always loved... Um, one reason I've always loved bands like The Replacements or, uh, you know, whatever is that mixture of, you know, they, they can make you laugh and they break your heart in the same line, you know? <laughs> and, um, like you listen to a song like Unsatisfied and it's just, or, uh, you know, just some of the funniest songs, like, you know, just a line like in their song I Will Dare where he says, uh, ain't lost yet, so I gotta be a winner. Bacon and cigarettes, a lousy dinner. <laughs> you know? So it's like, so he's being optimistic, but he's like, really isn't that good. Right, and, um, to write a song like Here Comes a Regular, which is like, you know he's lived that life. Oh, exactly. And I think that, uh, I think it's that kind of um, mixture of funny and sad that I've always responded to in shows like The Office or Cheers or Party Down or in Billy Wilder movies or um, in my favorite music. You know, it's just that, that like, in a movie like Gross Point Blank, you know, where John Cusack goes to his father's grave, pulls out a bottle of whiskey, pours it on the grave, drops the bottle, and walks away. And that tells you everything you need to know about the relationship he had with his dad. You don't have to say anything else. And that's in a comedy, you know, and those those kind of moments, I think, you know, really hit home with me. And I think that, um, I think also just the fact that, you know, I try to be generally positive, but I, like most comedians, you know, struggle with, you know, insecurity and self-loathing and all that stuff. So in a way, it's a way of, like, processing those feelings by just putting them in a character, just a character who, um, you know, has this dark stuff happening, but he's trying to push through and be positive. I'm going to sell this thing. I'm going to sell this thing to you right now. But he's got all this backstory that... um isn't isn't so great, and um, but you know the interrupter. I mean, the interrupter. You know, lived in a dumpster behind the Port Authority bus terminal, but he's staying really positive. You know, um, had he had seven different types of hepatitis, <laughs> and uh, so I think it's like my way of dealing with stuff that you know scares me in life, and um, that's the reason I've always loved you know dark dark comedy. Uh, you know, sometimes. Uh, you know, the, 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 it, it's just a way of processing stuff, stuff that would horrify me in life, dealing with it in an abstract way in a comedy sketch. It's really like when we did Wiki Barrett, Conan, last, you know, the last couple of years. That's 
in really sweet wiki bear voice, he's talking about like the Donner Party and man and it's uh, it's my way I think of dealing with stuff that horrifies me um, and laughing about it because otherwise it's just too too much to take. Yeah. But I think, too, that what you just mentioned, whether Party Down, Cheers, Freaks or Geeks, uh, Billy Wilde, yeah, these are the characters, these are the stories that resonate and that don't feel dated even 40 years past his prime. I mean, the, to me, these are the best characters, the ones that never go bad. That's absolutely true. I think those are the ones that, I mean, it's one reason I think Charlie Brown or, you know, that's the reason, you know, peanuts, you know, it's kind of shocking in a way that a comic strip with so much real melancholy and depression <laughs> could be so universally popular. Like, yeah, you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special and it's it's deeply sad in many ways, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's a classic and it'll always endure because I think everyone has the, the holiday blues, you know, to a certain extent. And to pretend that we don't, you know, it is, uh, seems false. So I think it's one of the reasons that people always respond to things like that, you know, or uh, shows like Cheers or like Party Down isn't necessarily as well known as those other shows, but I think it has that same beautiful blend of funny and sad and truthfulness to it. I love that show. It reminded me of Taxi and that all these characters wanted to be someplace. They had aspirations to be out of where they were. That's a great point. That That's, it's very, uh, that's very true. I think that that, and that's one of the reasons I think it's one of the truest shows I've seen about LA as, as I experienced it. You know, just, just everyone kind of feeling, if I get this next thing, then I'll be happy. You know? Right. And, uh, yeah. there's, there's always that next thing, you know, like I, I remember saying to a friend of mine who was in the second city touring company, but before I'd gotten hired and I always dreamed of working for second city and just saying, if I can get in the touring company, that's it. That's all I ever need. He's like, no, then you want to be in the resident company. And then you want to, that's right. Then you want to get this. And, and it's just human nature, you know. It's just everybody has that aspirational quality. Um, I think it's just how we're wired to be. Well, I think that's so true. And, and not even just performing, but in writing. You know, if I get in this magazine, if I get this published, my life will be different. Well, it's not going to be different. You'll just want something more. I think it's a good thing to want, but if you keep wanting your entire life, you're never going to reach some level of happiness. Yeah, that's the thing. I think you have to kind of find ways to fill up that hole on your own, you know, because if you're waiting for affirmation from others to, to fill it up for you, you know, it's just, it's not going to happen because you're always going to, like I was always mystified when I hear about really, you know, just really famous artists and, and music or film or whatever having these these personal props that I'm like wait why they've got everything they want you know why or Kurt Cobain or something you know you just look at that and you're like no they they probably thought this was going to fill it up but it didn't you know what advice would you give that, those out there who want to get into comedy either writing or performing and maybe it was even advice that you wish you had known 20 some years ago well I would say one thing would be to, um, one thing I've learned is that most of the people I know that have had some success have, have followed what they, what in their heart they really enjoy doing the most as opposed to what they think they're supposed to do. Like, so for example, like I, as much as I admire and, uh, am in awe of a lot of stand-up, 
comedians that I've known, stand up was never something that was that I was suited for, you know. So, and if I tried to do it, I think it would have showed in my work that it wasn't that guy's just doing this <laughs> to try to get somewhere, or he's trying to this, this, his heart isn't in this, you know. Um, so, I think I would say do what you really enjoy because you're going to get better faster. It's going to show in your work when you love what you do. Um, whether that's just writing, whether it's stand-up, whether it's improv, whether it's music, what, whatever you want to do, I would follow uh, your heart on that and do do what you love uh, and enjoy it as an end in itself as you're as you're getting like it's fine to have goals in mind and I think that's very healthy, uh, but enjoy enjoy what you're doing as an end in itself along the way. Like that's one thing I've always noticed about people like Amy Poehler, you know, like. People ask her, why do you still come and do improv shows, you know, now that you're doing movies and TV and stuff? And she always looks a little baffled when people ask her that. And you can tell that she just loves it, you know. Mm-hmm. She loved it when she was coming up. She still loves it. And I think that, uh, that, that, that she enjoyed it as an end in itself, but even though it led to other things, she was enjoying it along the way. Even if it had never led to anything, she would have still had a great time. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and I think that, like, I look at a guy like Keith Richards, you know, you can tell in his face that he'd be playing music even if he never got famous. He'd be playing it from bar in England, you know, just, it's just, it's something that, uh, he just loves to do. But one, one other thing, though, I would say, that, and this is something that I look back on with, with some regret, was, uh, there were times I was, I've just been way too passive and waited for things to happen. You know, and I think sometimes, especially in today's day and age, I've always admired people that, you know, are a little more proactive with their, with their careers or with their goals. Uh, I tended to kind of wait for opportunities to come my way and some, some thankfully did and I'm very grateful for that. But, uh, like there were times where I had opportunities that came up and I just wasn't ready. I wasn't, uh, like I had, but a chance years ago to audition for SNL, for example, and I just wasn't expecting to get that chance, and I wasn't really ready when I went in to do it. And I think that the, I would tell people, be confident enough in yourself to know that some opportunities are going to come along, and be ready. Just be ready when they come along, because, um, I think, Someone once said, luck is when uh, opportunity meets preparation, mm-hmm. you know, and, like, there were times where opportunities came up for me, and I just, I wasn't prepared, I wasn't ready, you know, I, I was scrambling for stuff, like, I, I think about, like, if someone comes along and says, hey, I like your stage show, do you have any spec scripts? It's a lot better to have some spec scripts ready than to say, oh, I'll throw something together, you know? But I think there's um, another lesson there in that you didn't get the job at SNL, but you kept moving forward. Yeah, you know, I look back on it, and I'm uh, philosophical about it, because it was, uh, like, for most of the people coming up with, with me, uh, it was always kind of one of the big dream jobs. But I look back on it, and I, I've come to terms with the fact that it was probably for the best in my case, because I think I'm a little more suited to being a little more low-profile and being kind of a little more... You know, is a, a little flying a little more under the radar, and I think being in a, even though I've, you know, loved SNL like, uh, and 
the jokes that had an incredible history and everything. I think in many ways I was more suited to a show like Conan or um, Stephen show and just being kind of part of the ensemble and part of the background. And uh, I think it suits me a little more. And um, that's nothing against SNL or the people that have come up there. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it's history and everything. But, you know, I think that you, uh, like I always think of, of people like that I've heard about who were just, when they got that chance to do that audition, they had, they had, uh, three to five minutes of stuff they could do by themselves, two camera, bam, presentational, you know, really strong material. And I would tell people, if you think you want to be on a sketch show like that someday, just have stuff ready to go, you know, have stuff ready to do by yourself. I'd come out of ensemble work, you know, I'd, I'd worked with other people all the time, and I didn't have stuff I could do by myself to camera, you know. <laughs> I um, Everything I did was, was group, group-related stuff. And uh, you have to have something like that because those opportunities are going to come along, even if you don't dare to dream that they will. There, there are going to be times where you get a shot at something like that. And uh, if it's what you want, just just be ready for it. You know, that's that's one piece of advice I'd give that was like kind of a hard learned. But I'm I'm fine with the way it all worked out. And um, but I would say that that's something that I would tell young people is just to you know believe in yourself enough to be ready for some opportunities because they may come up. You know, when you least expect them. That's right. What what was it that you performed that didn't go over so well at, at the SNL audition? Oh, well, it went fine, but it was it was a little bit. It, it was clearly not like I did. I did like a, a like a Sean Connery thing that went fine, and you know, it, it went. They were, they were nice, and they they seemed to um, like it fine. But it was it wasn't it wasn't like a performance level audition. Like you really want to go in there with stuff where it's like. Um, like they wanted a political impression and I, I, uh, I tried to kind of do a Ted Kennedy thing that was kind of half written and I sounded more like Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. <laughs> you know, but they were not, it went fine. It wasn't like a disaster or anything, but it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't going to wow anybody. And I, then I clearly hadn't scripted it out very well and it, you know, it would dribble off in places because I didn't really have an ending to things. <laughs> You know, it wasn't a presentational audition, and you really need to, uh, you know, you need to have something that you can just go bang. And uh, that's what, like, for example, like I heard Will Ferrell, he did a sketch that he'd done at the Groundlings. It was a one-man sketch to get off get off the shed. Oh, my sketch. Lord. I don't know if you remember. That was one of his, that was his first sketch on the show, I think. Yeah, and it was hilarious, and it was something he had done at the Groundlings, and it was a sketch that you could do by yourself. And it was really funny, and it showcased his talent, and it also had an ending and a beginning and a middle. <laughs> and it's, it's a perfect audition sketch to do, and there's a reason why it ended up on the show, because it was so funny. Um, so that's, I think, you have to have stuff like that that you can do at an audition. Because they haven't seen you do anything else, really, except maybe the, the scouts came through town, and like the people that saw me in Chicago and asked me to come out had seen me in, in that ensemble environment and like that stuff they should fly me out but ultimately when you go out there it's just you it's, it's you 
you, you got to be able to do something. Like Jimmy Fallon, I heard, did a celebrity walkathon, which is a brilliant, brilliant idea if you're an impressionist. You know, just go out there, you can do like 10 to 15 impressions, bam, 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 in like three to five minutes. Yeah. And that's a perfect way to showcase yourself. You gotta, you gotta be able to, you know, make, make that impression in like five minutes and you only have five minutes, but don't, you know, don't have stuff that dribbles off and like seems half baked, you know, just have something ready to go that you, that is almost an air quality sketch ideally, like with Will Ferrell did with the get off your shed, get off the shed, you know, that's, um, that's an ideal audition piece and if you can have, if you have stuff like that, that's, that's what you want to do. Yeah, you have to be lucky, but you have to be ready for the main chance. That's it. Like, you know, I remember hearing this. I don't know Donald Glover, but I remember hearing when they approached him, the 30 Rock people said, hey, I really like your internet videos. Do you have any spec scripts? And he's like, yep, yeah, here you go. And he had them ready to go. Here you go. These are written so he didn't have to scramble. He had them ready to go, and they were funny, and they were they were honed, and they were ready to read. And, um, you know, that's, that's ideally, I mean, not, not everybody's that prepared, but if you are, it can really be great for you, you know, because it's like, you may not get that chance again, you know, or they may say, uh, if you have one script, they're going to say, you got a second one? <laughs> that happens a lot because they're going to think your one script is a fluke or something, mm-hmm. you know, so have two specs ready to go. Um, and this is easy for me to say, like, I, this is coming from a guy who, you know, <laughs> is, uh, is not that that type of uh, prepared individual. So I, I'm saying this with sympathy to all the other people like me out there, you know. Well, it's a job, and you have to treat it like any other job. Even if you don't have to show up every day, I think you have to work every day on something and always move forward. And uh, like you say, just be prepared. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's it. Just uh, being ready to go, and also. I think, and I say this as a kind of, the kind of guy who goes into situations pretty underconfident most of the time. So I say this with sympathy to all the underconfident people out there. Um, it helps to kind of, you know, the old saying, fake it till you make it. I've seen it work for people, you know, like just trying to, going into situations with a certain amount of, uh, even if it's false self-confidence, try to, Try to protect self-confidence when you go into these situations because people really want to like you and they want to believe in you. And if you go in acting like you don't belong there, they're probably going to think you don't belong there, you know? No, I think uh, that's like, great advice, actually. Well, listen. And, and it, oh, go, sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say that, and I say that with great sympathy because I'm, I'm definitely one of those people that my first instinct is to walk in going, like when I did that SNL audition, you walk out onto the main you're walking out on the main host stage in Studio Age, and you're, your first instinct is just go, what the hell am I doing here? You know? And what you want to project is, yeah, why, why shouldn't I be here? And Because um, that's what they want to see. They want to see someone who thinks they belong. You know, and um, that's, uh, that's not always easy to do. But like my friend Betty Cahill, you know, who was on SNL for a season uh, many years ago, who I, I did improv with in Chicago, she said when she was auditioning at SNL, uh, Phil Hartman came around. I always wish I could have met him at least once, but she said she asked him, hey, you know, can I ask you, if you were auditioning again, is there any piece of advice you'd give 
And then he said, he said, we're all scared shitless and it's part of our job to pretend that we aren't. Yeah. And that's so true. And, yeah. And he said, basically, just go out there, use all your skills to just look like you aren't scared. Just go out there and just have fun. Go out there and just summon up everything in you to just have fun out there. And, just pretend you aren't scared. And he said, you know, he said, I, he said, we're all scared. And, uh, I thought that was really interesting advice. He never seemed scared, but of course he was at times, you know? Yeah. And, I, um, I think you're right. Even people who look like they've never been scared, everyone wonders, do I belong? Do I, should I be here? Do I belong where I am right now? And everyone probably thinks, no, I don't. But it's the, it's the pretending that you don't, that you do belong. That's, that's key. I think so, and I think that uh, confidence often goes even further than talent. Like, I've seen people in the business, we've all seen people that seem more confident than they are talented, and that that sometimes <laughs> goes further than talented people that don't have confidence, yeah. I think. I think so, too, yeah. Uh, you kind of wonder, with, with someone who has so much talent, why don't they recognize it? And at the same time, someone without talent, why do they think they have such great talent? I know I have a, a musician friend who's just one of the funniest people I know, John Worcester. And oh, I know John. He's a great guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's just one of the funniest people I've ever met and also one of the best musicians uh, in the world. And he said, you know, all the best musicians think they suck. I think maybe that's the reason they keep pushing to, to try new things and maybe it's the reason that, you know, but, but I found that very interesting. And, uh, and I think that's also true with comedians, you know. Uh, your work has meant a lot to me over the years. I think you're an amazing performer, and from what I can tell, just a great guy. And I think what you're doing is at the top level, and I really appreciate you giving me this much time. Well, it's my pleasure, Mike. Really, it's a, it's an honor to be asked to, to talk to you, and I've loved your books, and I think your insights into comedy writing and the insights you've gotten from people you've talked to have been incredibly valuable. And uh, I think books like Hook Me Dead Frog and everything will be valuable to Copywriters, you know, generations from now, that that stuff. I think a lot of that advice will be just as valuable years from now as it is today. That's really nice, Brian. I really appreciate you saying that, and um, keep up the great work. That's it for this 424th episode of Doing It. With Mike Sachs. My name is Mike Sachs, and you just did it with me. Here are some highlights from the upcoming podcast. Mike shoots space dust from his nipples. Mike joins Scientology and wears a jaunty sailor's cap to celebrate. Mike wets himself and then impishly winks. Mike blasts doo-wop from his convertible in order to impress millennials. Mike carries a samurai sword around Disney World until he is told to stop. Mike dates a cheerleader named Chrissy from the Indoor Football League. Mike meets his idol, Jim Belushi, and they talk about the blues. Top 1,000 Bikram yoga smells from worst to best. Mike buys a cock ring from Zales in Montgomery Mall. Mike returns cock ring because it's a bit loose. <laughs> Zales does not accept cock ring because Mike lost the receipt.
I appreciate you joining us. I really do. I look forward to seeing you all next week, especially you, that one who's listening to this podcast on the subway, the guy with his hands down his pants. I want to mention again that I'll be hosting a live show October 27th at Union Hall in Brooklyn. Tickets can be purchased at unionhallny.com. I would love to see you there. Please come if you're available. A few shout-outs. Brian Stack for sitting down and talking with me. Brian's work can be seen on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert every night or at his very funny Twitter site, at BrianStack153. Those are the numerals, 153. Tyler Wall, Brian Huddell, Andrea Salenzi, Avery Edison, and Ben Hating for donating to our Patreon page. I'd like to thank Ian Goldstein for his help. You can reach Ian at his email, igold91, numerals 91, igold91 at gmail.com, or on his Twitter page, at Ian Goldstein, yes. Sam Peach, I'd like to thank for his marketing and artistic skills. You can see Sam's incredible illustration work on Instagram and Twitter, at at Death Creative, and that's just the letter O and then Death Creative, one word. And on Facebook and Tumblr, under O Death Creative. I'd like to thank Rob Schulte for once again producing, editing, and wrangling everything. You can reach Rob at robkschulte.com, or you can listen to his great podcast, Pumpkin Spice Podcast, and you can find that on iTunes. You can reach me at mikesax.com or at doingitwithmikesax.com or on Twitter at doingitpod. Okay, you know what to do. God damn it, you humans. Keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. Wake up! The thing about having somebody turn the tables on you is always great if it's never been done. Well, I myself am not gay, and I don't think that Henry Rollins is gay, but if I were to be with a guy, I would want it to be with him. What makes Henry Rollins so erotic for me, I guess, is all his tattoos and muscles, and, you know, I know he's an intelligent person, but, I mean, he just appears like he wouldn't I have a clue, like a big dumb rock. I think that's kind of sexy. He's exaggerated, like the exaggerated male. It's almost ridiculous how masculine he is. I'm perfect in every way. My fantasy about Henry Rollins starts out, we're in a gymnasium together, and I'm spotting for him, and I'm holding his barbell. He's like staring at my crotch, and all these like thoughts are filling my mind about how like I want to be with him, and I want to be just as big as he is, and I want to have like huge muscles. Next thing I know, we're like moving into his house and I basically just become like this slave to Henry Rollins. He's always out on tour and stuff and I'm always home and whenever he gets back, I just do whatever he wants. And we go and get matching tattoos and I get like this huge tattoo on my butt. It says property of Henry Rollins on it. 